Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Ultimate Wilderness. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Gladly. Okay, so we talk about games and also sometimes movies and also sometimes tv shows but for real this time we're doing games because it's actually kind of been a while uh lots of lots of stuff coming out recently uh but we wanted to make sure that um the new releases that we were covering were not just uh movies uh and that we made some time for ultimate wilderness the newest release from paizo for the pathfinder system um we are changing up the, the the format a little bit on these kind of uh, on these kind of episodes because what always happens is we start running through it and we want to be like thorough or whatever, but then we kind of get like so bogged down in the details that we never end up like finishing out a book, uh, which is unfortunate. So we're gonna try and we're gonna hit you with the highlights, right? Like a top down, worth it, not worth it sort of thing, and then some of the you know uh, some of the big big ticket numbers in here. Um, for uh yeah i guess for 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 your uh pathfinder games um just real quick before uh before we get into any of the finer details uh how does ultimate wilderness stack up as a paizo product for you uh disappointing in a word um i found the uh like i found the shifter to be kind of like bleh uh the archetypes are all right and some of the other rules text is is all right but a lot of it is compiled from the splat um, and as a subscriber to the Splat subscription lines, I have most of that Splat. Um, uh, that being said, uh, the stuff from the Splat is very good. Uh, so if you don't own the Splat, this is a good collection of stuff. There's stuff from, like, uh, People of the Wilderness. There's, like, a forest book. There's People of the River. Um, there were a couple other ones, too, that were all wrapped up in this. And so uh, uh, I was disappointed on, like, kind of that level because I had all that stuff already. Um, uh, of, uh, but other than that, I, I, this is, book is severely underwhelming to me. I would, uh, I would echo that sentiment. I think disappointing is a pretty great word to describe Ultimate Wilderness, um, especially because I've been looking forward to the shifter for an, ex an extremely long time. And a lot of the times in these Ultimate books, right, like the class that gets released, um, or the, or, or you know, like the archetypes or the, or, or whatever else, right, like that's kind of the most interesting stuff. Um, but in here, it's kind of the least interesting stuff. And it's kind of as though um, they really went for the most blasé uh, execution. Not just on the shifter itself, but on, uh, on a lot of the archetypes. Um, and on, um, on some of these like races and stuff like that. So uh, I'm not... Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, not, I'm not super into it in the way that I was. Like Ultimate Intrigue or something. Yeah, I, I think the most interesting thing about the shifter is kind of my questions about how they decided to do some of these things because they do some very interesting things, especially with the archetypes. But let's jump into the shifter then, um, uh, and like try and get through this uh, in a reasonable amount of time. That way we can move on to the other stuff. But uh, uh, let's start with like you know, basic class fantasy is um, it's basically a druid, but with everything, but like extremely focused on on shape shifting. Um, uh, and it shares a lot of, like, druid things, like, like, they're supposed to be part of, like, the druidic orders, but, I don't know, almost kind of like, uh, like an inquisitor to the druid. As oh, interesting. So, I, I, you know, I don't actually see it as, a, as an inquisitor so much as I see it as kind of like the, um, because, uh, you know, obviously it doesn't get spells. Right, right. right. But in the way that you have, like, a, bar like, you kind of have this progression of, like, barbarian, blood rager, 
uh, like sorcerer kind of, if that makes sense. It's bigger than that, but like, I, it, it is kind of this. It's kind of like a martial only bottom step to the kind of druid ranger, like druid hunter ranger line, right? There was no okay, yeah, yeah, straight yeah. straight martial version of this kind of like wilderness hero class fantasy, and I think that the shifter is attempting to deliver on that. Unfortunately, uh, it it is bad. And it's bad, un- and, which sucks because it's such a, it's like such a headlining piece of the class. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I, like it feels to me that that's w- that's where it's looking to kind of like make its mark. Right here is another martial class on par with stuff like the fighter and the barbarian and the rogue. Um, that is also kind of a part in like a matrix sense um, of this line of uh, you know kind of ranger druid list nature bound. Um, divine spellcaster, like that, yeah. that kind of, yeah. I, I kind of feel like, like uh, Shifter is it isn't so much bad as it is boring. Um, like I don't, I like I'm, I'm sure the numbers are fine. Like I, I haven't done any of it, but none, none of it seems like particularly off to me. It just seems like not a lot happening. Well, let's let's go through the the, the features. Let's start with let's start with the boring stuff, like the the always boring stuff. Class skills, skills per rank, skills per level. Um, and uh, proficiencies, um, and bonus languages, and uh, I don't have a ton to say about this. Yeah, this is all pretty straightforward. I mean, they do like one of the one of the ways you can t- tell like shifters are kind of a subset of druids is they get druidic as a bonus language, um, and they have all the they, druid restri- restrictions on their armor and their and their yeah, weapons. Yeah, yeah, like you know they need to use ironwood stuff in order to use metal. Um, uh, you know, all of that kind of all that kind of good stuff. But at the end of the day, like a shifter is not defined by his ability to use a quarter staff or a scimitar. Um, in the same way that a druid isn't defined by his ability to use either of those two things. So I don't think that it's a huge, huge deal. Um, I don't think it's a huge, huge deal for the shifter. Where the shifter really starts to take off, though, um, is at first level you start gaining these shifter aspects, uh, which are kind of like... What are like, they the, like the the hunter, uh, the hunter aspect stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. what it yeah. reminded me of. Um, but it is, it's a little bit more advanced than that because it allows you to actually shift into, you know, these, these forms and they and they tend to be a little bit more dramatic. Well, well, um, well the, the minor aspects are, are like that. Cause you don't get the major form until you get, until you get shape shift at, or wild shape at level four. Sure. Sure. I, I, I guess I'm meaning a little bit, um, like flavorfully oh, right? fair like enough. a shifter. Yeah. Like if a shifter takes like an Eagle aspect, he'll, he'll, he'll actually get talons right compared to a hunter taking an eagle aspect won't you know what i mean like he will be magically better at whatever the eagle aspect does but it won't add like like right force him to shift um but the shifter aspect does actually make you you change your form um not not in the minor stuff it's like it's where's the eagle maybe i i missed it but uh I thought most of them were like skill bonuses in the minor forms. Yeah, most of them. Most of them are the same. Mechanically, they are very similar to the hunter aspects because it's like plus two to con for you know whatever bear aspect of the bear kind of thing. Um, but uh, to my, to the best of my, am I wrong about that? I mean, I don't think become, there's an eagle form. I don't think there's an eagle form either. It's Falcon, uh, but, which but they do shift, right? Like they do take on like the the appearance of their aspect. My, but that that's supposed to be the hunter too. The hunter doesn't do that. The hunt the, when the hunter's using I thought when the hunter was using his uh like his like minor thing, he was supposed to like gain like minor aesthetic change. Like minor form doesn't actually change you into the into the animal. It just kind right, of right, ma- right. 
I think the hunter is supposed to be that too. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. Keep and you know what? To be honest with you, really doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the point is, is that um, the shifter aspects are, are are the kind of bread and butter where, like, you know, you as a shifter um, are in tuning to specific animals, right? And and really defining yourself and what kind of abilities you want, right? If you want to be, you know, a strength based shifter, you take aspect of the bull, right? Um, if you want a dex based shifter, you take aspect of the tiger, sort of thing. Um, you gain, uh, sh you you are um, okay. So you can shift into your minor aspects uh, or your aspects minor form for duration um, of minutes equal to three plus your shifter level. So plenty of time. Um, but you know, it all has to be in those one in minute increments. So in general, as soon as you hit combat, you'll probably be shifting into, you know, like it's shifting into a minor form. Um, you'll also be gaining more aspect as you level up. You get a second aspect, level five, third at level 10, fourth at level 15. Okay. Um, just as an interesting point, cause I, I went and looked it up. I think that the minor aspects might actually be identical to the uh, to the animal focused stuff from Hunter. Oh my god, that makes me hate this shifter so much more because it just feels so lazy at that point. Because like part of the shit, like all of this shifter art has has shifters that are like half transformed, right? You know, like on the next yeah. page in the book, there is like, you know, there's clearly a shifter whose hands are eagle talons or whatever, hawk talons, whatever you know it is, kind of thing. Um, and, uh, but, like, none of the hunter stuff, like, none of the hunter art has that stuff, which is why I had that, like... Oh, I see what you're saying. ...notion, yeah, yeah. if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think one of the hunter archetypes is, like, a, like, that, that doesn't have the animal companion gets that feature, which is probably what I was thinking of, which is probably the proto-shifter, um, kind of by design, anyway. I think it's, like, feral, feral hunter or something, I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the next piece of the shifter, like, that is also a huge core part of their class is what's called shifter claws, which is probably, like, the laziest, grossest aspect of the shifter that really bugs me. Um, shifter claws, essentially, like, it, you just, no matter what forms you take, right, you gain claws, um, and, uh, those claws kind of, uh, increase in damage, Kind of like unarmed strikes do, though not by the exact same progression. Um, they don't start out at D6, they start out at D4 um, of slashing and piercing damage. Um, but, you know, you get you get DR, cold iron, and then the claw damage increases at... It's basically like a monk. And um, yeah, yeah, it is like a monk, but not exactly the same yeah, as yeah. a monk. Um, like, the base damage stays pretty low comparatively to a monk. You know, a 13th level monk is going to have, you know, 2d6 or 2d8 or whatever it is. Uh, unarmed strike damage, a shifter will have 1d10. Um, yeah. So, honestly, this is looking more and more like they just slap pieces together from things because we we're taking the minor aspect or the, uh, the animal focuses from the hunter and combining it with the unarmed strike from... The monk. Yep. Um, oh. The thing, the thing that bugs me so much about wild claws and the thing, or shifter claws, that really, really gets to me, is they had. Is I felt like they just had a much better opportunity, and I don't know why they didn't take it. Um, I feel as though if you're going to lean into the shifter, right, you want to lean into different kind of natural attacks. 
So, like, right. a shifter of the boar would get a gore attack, and a shifter of the bear would get... Or, you know, a shifter of the crocodile, right, would get a bite attack, right? Um, and a shifter of a tiger would get a claw attack. And you want to... And I, I feel like it's so... Na- it would be so much more natural... Um, to split up the not natural to split up these natural attacks based on like what the animal aspect you're adopting is, um, and so like you have the option to you know if you want to be a shifter of the crocodile right you have really powerful bite attacks but like that doesn't lend itself to full attacking for instance uh, in the same way that a claw in the in that adopted claw attacks does right uh, um, I, if I had to guess I I bet you a lot of this is. Um, by making them all claw attacks, uh, they don't have to deal with things like, well, if it's a bite attack, then they can get a full attack with their manufactured weapon and then do a bite on the end of it or whatever. And it's probably just simpler for it, for them to do it like this. Yeah, see, like, I actually kind of feel like that's part of the fantasy of being yeah, a shifter. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it is cool to wade into battle with, like, a stone, you know, a stone-tipped spear, stab someone, and then, you know, shift into a crocodile and bite the shit out of them, yeah. right? Well, well, um, in, 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 the, in the crocodile form, you can a- apply the damage increase to any two natural attacks if they don't have claws. Yeah, so I think too, so and, and I do, and I, yeah, I do want to mention that um, later, later in the shifter, you do get the ability to wild shape. Wild shape is much more constrained compared to uh, the way it is in Druid, where you can kind of do whatever the fuck you want. Um, in shifter, wild shape is only for major forms of aspects that you have selected. Um, so you can't transform into anything. You can only transform into one of the four aspects you will end up uh, getting over the course of you know over the course of your level sort of thing. Um, but you, the, they do have language in there that's basically like, yeah, like if you wild shape into a crocodile and, and bite the shit out of somebody, um, you know, you can use your claw damage if it's higher. I also think this is part of the reason that the claw damage is suppressed naturally, um, uh, it, because I think, um, you know, most natural attacks uh, tend to have worse base die than what like the the, I guess like the matching um, monk. Uh, progression would give you right yeah I, I think a lot of animals also get like a bunch of bonuses on their attacks that monks don't right like yeah yeah like the lizard form gives you both uh um like a like a grab bite and a trip tail so you know th- that's at least nice um and that's like the monster rule grab and trip that, that's i think the big thing about this class is that um the wild shape um initially giving you the b-shape two stuff like gives you access to stuff that you normally don't have access to when you use wild shape or um or you know like form of elemental yep. form or whatever yeah and those are i think are the are, are the is what was supposed to be the big feature um but honestly um i feel like uh i feel like the the list of animals is kind of underwhelming like there's no crocodile right like there's the that kills me by the way because i love the idea of crocodile yeah. shifters um well we're butting up against yourself self post time so let's try and get through the other features a little bit quickly uh, it has a whole bunch of stuff that you would expect from a class like this. Wild Empathy, Track, Woodland Stride, right? Um, but it also has some, it, it also has some, like, defensive aspects to itself. Um, you get, you get an ability called Defensive Instinct, um, that is one of those kind of, like, if you are unarmored, not using a shield, unencumbered, right, you get a bunch of stuff to your AC and CMT, right? Um, we've seen this in other classes, like Swashbuckler, it's kind of just, oh, like, I, I think it's actually, for you. I think it's actually straight up from Monk. Like, this is, like, the monk uh, wisdom bonus to AC. Oh, yeah, just, like, renamed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and then as you level up, you do you, you do get some access like access to cool stuff. Um, chimeric aspect allows you to adopt multiple aspects simultaneously, um, and and greater chimeric aspect upgrades that at level fourteen. Um, so you can do things like mix and match a little bit, which I do think is very neat um, and pretty cool. Um, but then you get to the, the shifter aspects themselves, um, and to be honest with you, it feels as though most of the shifter aspects are pretty awful, um, ex like, except for the ones that you know are good, and I can't help but think that because they knew that you were getting multiple shifter aspects, in a way, like, that you were going to end up with the, this ability almost to, um, uh, you know, say, well, no one is going to take aspect of the bat, which just gives you dark vision and blind sense, um, Nobody's going to take Aspect of the Bat at level 1, because at level 1, you obviously take Bull for the Strength bonus, right? Or, or, or Bear. For the dex bonus, or or bear. bear for the Cod bonus. You pick... Yeah, you know what your I mean? First level one, your, your, your first one is going to be your... It's going to be like your combat form, because that's also going to be the first one you want to transform into when you finally unlock that. Yeah. Um... um. And even, you know, and there and there are some other ones in there that aren't just, like, straight stat boosts uh, to your base stats. Like, I think Dionychus, uh, which is, like, a raptor, uh, but you get a bonus to initiative checks. I think that's a pretty powerful one uh, to take in the early um, in the early levels. And I think you're right that the Lizard Major form uh, is also pretty good. Uh, and you get this competence bonus to acrobatics checks, which I think is, you know what I mean? Like, I think you can make a case that there are uh, the good ones that are just stat steroids. These kind of medium level ones like Dionychus, Lizard, um, you know, maybe you could make a case for me that something like uh, um, uh, Snake, which gives you special bonuses to attacks of opportunity and um, AC against attacks of opportunity, right? Like maybe you can make a case for me that those are pretty good. But I feel like at the end of the day, what they're, what they're encouraging with these stats um and with this design is for you to take something generic and then kind of spice yourself up as you gain levels which is like the worst way to design the shifter it feels like just absolutely awful yeah um i feel like they were afraid that like giving like that that like because essentially at at fourth level you get you can transform once a day only once but it's four up to your level number of hours that's four yeah. hours so pretty quickly, like around level eight, which is kind of like uh, the sweet spot, at least in my opinion, for playing the game, like you could be your bear form all day. Um, and I think you also get access to a second uh, wild shape at six. Yeah. At eighth level, you, you get, you could turn it on and off three times. Um, and then you could do it for the whole day, like eff effectively the whole adventuring day if you wanted to, Yeah, which is like really cool. Um, kind of in, in its own place that like, you know, 90% of the time I'm a bear. Um, but at the end of the day, I feel like they were afraid of that. Like that, like that's that's something that's like outside the normal design space. I think I think they put too many like uh, design points, to, for lack of a better term, into that. Yeah, I also think that uh, uh, the part of what kills me about the shifter is that I feel like as though they've executed on these kinds of fantasies in the past with extreme kind of like depth the the go-to example for me is like the kineticist the ability for the kineticist to kind of uh like adopt aspects of these elementals but then you can get you know you have all these different powers to choose from and then you have fusion powers right where it's like okay well now i'm a fire and earth kineticist and i can do lava stuff right i think that stuff is so neat and so well done 
uh, in Occult Adventures that when I look at the shifter and I'm kind of like, well, all of these aspects are completely separated. You you pull out, you know, so much of their combat, you know, like any, any of like the combat choices by saying uh, that everybody just gets shifter claws no matter what forms they're taking. Um, that I just kind of feel as though there, there was such a better, there was just a, a better way from the ground up to design this class. Um, I think relying on the kind of hunter aspects is a mistake. I think relying on the, the, the shifter claws is a mistake. I think probably the only thing that works out of this class is that, um, you know, you get these wild shapes, uh, and you get to do more with wild shape than a druid ever gets to do with their wild shape. Uh, something else to mention, by the way, is that as you level up um, with an aspect, you gain bonuses. For instance, with wolf form, just because I'm looking at it, at 8th level, the range of your scent increases to 40 feet, and you gain a racial bonus on survival checks. Um, and then at 15th level, you gain improved natural attack bite, right? Like, those kinds of things are... Uh, I think those kinds of things execute on the fantasy probably the best. Uh, but just the bread and butter stuff of these aspects, man. Oh, God, what a missed opportunity. Yeah, um, I think it's a good point to transfer into. I think that this confusion design extends into the archetypes, um, uh, especially the archetypes for the shifter. Uh, so um, just going through them to start, is there's the elemental shifter, which is fine. It's basically, this, it's basically you get to shift into elementals instead of into... Uh, into animals, um, and it's fine, right? Like the things it replaces are, are makes sense. But like, I feel like maybe they had some of these archetypes in mind when they designed the base class, so they were afraid to give the base class too too much stuff, um, or too much specific stuff because it would make it harder to switch out. Um, uh, because some of these some of these are like 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 I like the flavor of the elementalist shifter and the flavor of the fiend flesh. Called Fiend Flesh Shifter, which is basically like a, um, uh, what's it called, a, a devil themed one. Uh, but then you get into the Ooze Morph and the Raid Shaper, which are baffling to me, uh, in a lot of ways. Starting with the Ooze Morph, you, uh, uh, you get a bunch of like you're basically an ooze, and you get a bunch of abilities based on that. But the thing about it is, uh, it's the ability called Fluidic Body, um. Your base form is not that of your race, but that of a protoplasmic blob that has the same volume and weight. And Oozemorph treats her creature type as both ooze um, and her base creature type from a race for the purpose of uh, of effects targeting my creature type. Um, uh, you get basically ooze traits when you're in that form, but you can't. You have no magic item slots. You can't benefit from armor. Uh, cast spells, hold objects, speak, or any or use any magic item that requires activation is held or is worn on the body. Um and that's your default form. It's not that like that to me, by the way, is the clunkiest design I've ever heard of. Yeah, like because you I, basically need to track yourself with all of your magic items on and all of your magic items off, right? Which is just like holy shit. Uh, I think this is actually like worse than that because not only do you have to do that, but it's not like you can ooze morph into your human form and have everything on you. You also have to go through like, you know. The, like, put on the armor. But I think you're just supposed to, like, not use a lot of magic items, I guess. Like, this is a very weird class. Yeah. Um, because, you're, like, you know, of all of these archetypes, I think this one hits kind of, like, the fantasy of, like, being, like, most, like, you know, like, like the line between being a human and, the, and your form being, or, you know, being on a, a regular race in your form being blended. I think this one hits that fantasy the best, but it's so, like... Like, I don't think I, I'd want a player or, like, a, 
a PC to play this ever. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that, that might be uh, the case with archetypes in general to a certain extent, right? Like, And I also think that there's some archetypes in here that just don't quite hit the mark um, in terms of what they can do. Uh, so, for instance, um, you know, I, so there's actually some archetypes in here that I do like and I do want to talk about, right? But um, one of the archetypes that doesn't seem to work for me is this Summit Sentinel, which is kind of like a, like a, you, you, you do mountain stuff as a ranger. It's a ranger archetype, right? Um, you gain a bunch of stuff, but then you have this ability at 8th level called, like, Rock Slide. Um, you know, once per day is a standard action. You can create a rushing wave of earth of, of earth and stone. Uh, they choose a point on the on the ground and floor within 30 feet, rippling waves of earth or whatever, right? And each creature takes, like, a whole bunch of damage. Um, I think stuff like that is awesome and really cool, uh, but it also kind of feels like how you know like it, it it also kind of feels like that that stuff doesn't quite belong on the on the um like inside of inside of like an archetype special ability i guess um and i i don't know i don't know how to i, I don't know how to process some of this stuff right there are there are archetypes like the, the the title hunter um there's a barbarian version of this that are all about aquatic stuff and like you know being um you know, being a barbarian or being a ranger uh, in in an aquatic environment, um, but it also kind of feels like it's just pigeonholing you, so that these these archetypes are. It's not even like you play this in Skull and Shackles uh, to like give yourself a boost in water because that's what it means. It's just kind of like you make yourself very good in in aquatic fights and then awful everywhere else because of what you're giving up. Yeah, I, I think I think this is actually like an overall problem with the ranger in the first place um which you know we, we could talk about that some uh, about that at some other time but uh i think that like a lot of like these kind of uh like pigeonhole yourself into one aspect for like for for the adventures like i saw a lot of this in three five like there were a lot of classes like classes and feats and stuff that that did that um but i, I never you know, like, you only take that those things if you know that, like, every part of your campaign is going to be in the thing that favors you, at which point it's too powerful anyway. So See, yeah, I mean, I also think that there are really cool ranger archetypes, like the Flame Warden and Stormwalker, um, which are both kind of about adding lightning damage uh, or, or, or electricity damage or flaming damage to your stuff. Um, and are kind of agnostic to some of this other stuff. I think those, I think those archetypes work really well. Um... And so I kind of, I don't know, I kind of wish that, that that stuff was less, I don't know. Then you have stuff like the fucking Toxic Herbalist uh, that is, like, right what you're, just you know, right down the down the path of what you're describing, it feels like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I do want to touch on, on the Rage Shaper real quick, just because uh, this, this this archetype baffles me, I think, more than anything else I've, I've, I've seen in this book. Which is basically, you take your shifter, and you throw all of it out, and you make yourself into a barbarian. That grows big. Um, but without, like, a lot of the other barbarian... Like, you get all the benefits of the rage, and then you grow big. And then you lose all of your shifter stuff. It, it's it's just so weird that it is, like... like I, I, all I can do is look at this and, like, shift my head sideways. Like, this, this could be better served as, like, a barbarian archetype, I think, right? Like... All I have to do is put on, like, the sizing thing, and then, like, 
I don't know. Like you, like all the stuff that it gets from, uh, from Shifter are like the improved natural attacks and like, uh, that's that's really it. Like, you know, like flavorfully, I guess like unrestrained stride, which is basically a, uh, a better form of of Wilden stride, I think. Um, or maybe not. It's different than than Wilden stride, but it's like. Nothing, nothing about this is, is from the shifter, um, except for like the weird restrictions that it places on like your, your weapons and, and you know, like, like the druid rules, everything else is just, it's just barbarian. I, I like, I don't know. It, it's, it, it is baffling to me is, is the best way to put it. Yeah. Were there any other archetypes in here that you, that you wanted to highlight, you know, stuff that, stuff that you thought delivered well on, um, on the premise? Uh, oh, so I, I read this at the same time I read People of the Wasters. I, I, I remember liking one, but I, I'm not... Give me one second. Um, uh, they made the wood kineticist better, so I'm happy about that. I actually um, think that most of what they did with the with the couple of kineticists... Because um, uh, they also had, what, Blighted Defiler, which I thought was very cool. Um, and, uh, and the Terra kineticist... Um, uh, all that stuff was all that stuff was pretty neat. Terrakineticist, um, uh, Terrakineticist does has has the same kind of uh, oh, excuse me. Um, Terrakineticist has the same kind of like flavor as like um, uh, like it's not quite like it's not, well it's not quite like favored uh, stuff, but it's all about like elemental planes, which I think is just like awesome. Um, and they get some, and they get some neat stuff that they can do when it comes to, you know, controlling uh, the corresponding terrain uh, that they that they kind of choose in in something of like a like. There's actually a whole bunch of archetypes in here that basically give a class like favored terrain, and I was surprised at, at how much I was kind of like, "Yep, this is this is kind of neat. This kind of works for me." Yeah, I I I I feel that. Um, in a way, it almost kind of makes me think that the favored terrain set of things would work better as feats than they would what as class features, actually. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think favored terrain is a weird feature in the first place. Yeah. Um, uh, so I actually didn't read it very closely, but the Seasonal Witch art is really great. Like, that Autumn Witch looks fantastic. Um, so I wanted to call that out. Uh, if, if any of you have the book, go to page... Uh, 90 and look look at that uh look at that 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 uh autumn which it's 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 pretty great yeah um, yeah that is true that is pretty great <laughs> um yeah um oh the commando is also now that i'm looking at it the commando is a gunslinger archetype uh that that also gets favored terrain and it but it's also like a like a trap making kind of, it's like rambo essentially man that what a fucking cool archetype yeah yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I enjoyed, I, like, I thought a lot of these had, like, interesting ideas behind them, um, like, like, I really like the, uh, the, what's it called, the, the living avalanche brawler archetype, just cause, like, that shit's like, it, you know, it's, it's like a guy who just overruns everything, yeah, uh, and that's just, like, so much, that's, that seems so cool to me, so, you know, I'm, I'm definitely down for that, like, that's the type of thing I like, is, like, really going hard on, like, certain, uh, certain, uh, like, aspects of the character. Um, uh, do, do, uh, I think we, the other thing I want to point out is, uh, 
yeah, we got the illiterate barbarian archetype finally, uh, which is wildborn. Um, just the kind of the idea that like you can choose to be illiterate is is, is funny to me. Um, but yeah, I don't think you know. There's a fucking cartographer uh, for the investigator. That that's just like. I felt like the, with a lot of these kind of like naturally urban classes, they had a very tough time figuring out yeah. what they wanted to do with it. You know, uh, there's plenty of archetypes that are in the back um, that um, they couldn't, you know, like you can tell that they couldn't figure out something cool to do for it. Like Swashbuckler gets Arrow Champion and it's just kind of like, you know what, like a Swashbuckler is, uh, is, is, not, a, is not a class that will work super well um, out, out in the wilds, right? The Vigilante gets the Avenging Beast um uh so you know you got you you, you got stuff like that i actually oh. do want to i do want to mention that the wild strider which is a um which is a swashbuckler archetype is also very cool i have found yeah um, the, the arrow champions actually i think another thing from splat that got brought in oh okay um because it's it's basically robin hood yeah uh, yeah yeah. uh that's been around for a while um but yeah, I don't know if I want to focus on anything else in here. Like nothing else, like really spoke out to me as being particularly interesting or terrible. Yeah, gotcha. Um, Fair enough. I think there's there there are some other options in here. Stuff like um, uh, different war priest blessings, right? Um, or uh, like the plant eidolon subtype for a um, for summoner, for instance. Um, and but like most of that kind of stuff, I don't have. I didn't like. I just didn't find super super compelling in general yeah um i think uh, the only other thing i wanted to point out was is the wear touch archetype for the shifter i think is actually pretty good because basically like you're a werewolf um which i think is a neat fantasy to have with like with a reasonable set of rules instead of having to do like any of the weird cursed stuff from like the the optional like curse rules or whatever mm-hmm. um oh yeah uh that's all I want to say about that. Do we want to jump back to races real quick? Uh, yeah. So they added a couple of races uh, with the with the new book. Uh, three of them: uh, Gathlians, Gorins, and Vine Leshes. 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 I believe it's how you pronounce okay. it. Leshy. Um, just as like a quick over overview, uh, Gathlians are kind of like Fey. They're like wood angel sort of things. Like they have fey bodies, but they have these wooden wings. Um, they're small. Uh, then you have what are the ne- what's the next one? Uh, Gorins, which are like wood people, like plant people. And they're like um, they're like magic people. They're they're from uh, they're from like that that like that area of Galaria that's like magic blighted. Uh, yeah. Um. You know, they, they have the seed within them that, that they plant, and then the, their body grows out from around it. Um, they have, like, like bark for skin, but their faces are, like, petals that can, like, look like human faces and stuff like that. Um, they can, like, wear wear stuff. Uh, they are normal-sized, um, comparatively. And then vine leshies are, like, plant small plant beings uh that get, can get made they actually give you the stuff to make your own fight like like vine leshy because like it's a it's a ritual i guess um or like one of the occult rituals um, uh there are also there's also like uh like you can have them as familiars there's rooms for there, there's stuff about them being familiars 
Um, this is the first time I think they've they've been made as characters, but they're like, uh, have they been around for a while? Yeah, but like never in like this forefront of the shape. It's 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 weird because I, I think they're maybe trying to do like the cute thing, like you know, like this is like the cute class for like people who like cute things, or the cute race for people who like cute things. I, I don't know. It's they're, they're very weird because I never thought of them as like something that could be a PC. I mostly think of them as like uh, as familiars or um. Companions, maybe it's 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 I don't know. It's, it's a little it's a little weird to have a thing that can both be a companion, or or a familiar and a player class because that, that, that you could literally play a vine leshy who has a vine leshy as a companion. Yeah, um, it opens up some weird questions about like the nature of those relationships that maybe you wouldn't want to explore. Um, although for role playing options, you could play like a wizard that doesn't take the familiar option, but like. You know, in character, the the, the Leshy party member is is there is there familiar, even though they're not mechanically they're familiar. And I think that that's a, that's a cool kind of opportunity. Um, uh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, uh, one thing I do want to point out about the Gorons is that they have one of their racial abilities is delicious. Um, they take a minus two on escape artist checks because they're just so tasty. Um, well, they, so they, they were, Gorons were made as a food source, I feel like, in their lore, right? Wait, There's really? about that. Yeah. Um, bah, bah, bah. The first Gorons came into being thousands of years ago during a great war between two nations ruled by rival archmages. When mighty necromantic curses blighted the land of one nation, leaving its inhabitants on the brink of starvation, their canny uh. leader cut a deal with the renegade druid Goris, bidding him to put his forbidden talents to use in saving the realm. His solution was the creation of a race of hardy, fast-adapting plants that could thrive even upon the curse-blighted ground. These plants would be called Gorons, um... And uh, they swiftly developed the ability to move on their own. Ah, so they were they they were developed as a food source, but not they weren't developed as like humanoid, like you no know, food sources. They just eventually got there. Which yeah, is... watch out, guys! This is like Monsanto coming for you. GMOs. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna make our own Gorons. This is uh, this is now sci-fi. It's not fantasy anymore. Uh, but yeah, uh. Uh, but yeah, I th- I th- I actually think that they're neat, and I I would play pretty much any one of these, especially like especially a Gorin. Like I I think that they're cool enough that like I you know I have to say that I have a tough time with uh, with small races. I don't like s- being small. That's uh, fair. So I haven't played uh, I haven't played like halflings or gnomes, and I feel like Gathlins and Vineleshies would definitely fall under that uh like same sort of thing. Um, but Gorins are pretty neat. I could definitely find myself playing a Gorin. Uh, yeah, they get uh, one of their feats available to them is Delectable Faint, which lets them like use their tastiness to distract people. Also, the they have Delectable Flesh, which is a pretty fantastic spell. I mean, it's a very high-level spell. It's Druid level 7, Shaman level 7, Sorcerer, Wizard 6, Witch 6. Um, but uh, a creature within, you know, within range is the object of hunger, and all other creatures within 15 feet uh, can see or smell the target's delectable sex. Uh, delectable flesh must succeed at a will save or spiral into a depraved state from which they gain a single person to consume as much of the target's delicious flesh as possible. I think that's pretty fucking neat. Yeah, that's, that's also great because that's a spell that you could cast on the big bad and, like, not have it, like... 
like cause it's everything else that has to make the uh the save around it. Yeah. Uh like, you know, you cast it on a bot like, you know, if you ever wanted the moment where like the boss is devoured by his minions, like uh say in a, oh, a certain uh movie that oh, that we may have talked about recently. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> the exact same thing. <laughs> I went to go see it again yesterday, which is why it was on my mind. Did it make it any better? Uh, I'll talk about this in, in, in the end. Oh, okay, I do okay, actually yeah, want yeah. to bring it up a little bit. Um, yeah, uh, it also, it also, by the way, gives the depraved creatures bite attacks and claw attacks, um, and the scent ability. Um, so, man, like, that's hilarious. That's a hilarious spell. Um. Yeah, um, I actually also, they hid the Verdant Bloodline in the Goron place, but it's takeable by anybody. But, like, you know me, I'm, I'm a big fan of, like, any wood-based... Uh, wood-based powers, and I do so know you. I do know you. Uh, I would love to replay the Wooden Wanderer as as a verdant blood racer, like that, that. That that just seems like what he was actually supposed to be. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. I feel like um, uh, is that is that second guy that's in there? Is that, would you is that a verdant verdant blood racer? Uh, that or it's art? a leaf. I think so. It's either that or it's a leaf shifter. Yeah, I couldn't tell if it was a leaf shifter. Um. um yeah. Uh. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so those are the, so those are the races. I think these races are kind of nothing to write home about, but they're not as kind of blatantly yeah, wrong I... in the same way that the shifter is. Um, I feel as though they'll kind of end up with a lot of the other of the uh, like the Paizo developed um, races that you can play stuff like the Tengu and the Kitsune and just not see any play. People stick with the Core Seven. Uh, and they probably will for for the future. Yeah, um, I do like having the option there, though. Um, and I, uh, like I said, I could see myself playing one of these, but like that's what the domain of most of these races are for weird people. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, uh, are there any of the feats that that were in the feat section that that jumped out at you? I felt like this is the big part where I saw lots and lots of stuff from Splat. Yeah. Get get consolidated. Um, yeah. I want to the core books. I want to give a shout out to uh, my favorite feat of all time, branch pounce, uh, which lets you jump <laughs> off of a branch and deal extra damage to the person you're jumping off of, or or to the person you're jumping on. Uh, there's also some weird stuff like uh, Shifter's Edge is gives you extra if you're a dex shifter like if you take weapon finesse gives you extra damage but they're re uh they're eroding it like they've said that they're eroding it because it's too powerful um there's some like like animal ferocity is not like doesn't make any sense um like it doesn't uh like the uh the table text makes sense but the actual uh feet text doesn't make sense uh, so I'm, 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 holy shit, I just want to say, Shifter's Edge is incredibly broken, now that I look at it, oh my god, that's insane, like, wow, I can't believe they printed that, and that got through, like, the development phase and everything. Yeah, so it's, what it's changing to, is it's half your level to damage when you, when you apply strength to, uh, when you apply strength to, to your attack. So like if you're if you're playing a finesse shifter with some strength to get the damage, but if you have like agile on something, then okay. you won't get it. Like then it won't work. So Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, there there's some stuff that's in here that's actually pretty cool. I like the favored terrain feats. Um, but I mostly like the favored terrain feats because I think it's a neat way 
to allow like there's actually some stuff in here that is like blatantly awful feats that one should never take ice climber for instance is incredibly bad what an awful feat right um but i think that though the, these kinds of things are actually very cool because i think it would allow um uh, a campaign or a game master to like hand out feats like these kind of as bonus feats without, yeah. without a create creating incredible power balances if that makes sense like for instance i think it would be very cool to play um a kind of um and we we could do like a campaign pitch me on like this idea um where you know like you're you're kind of playing um not quite like christopher columbus but maybe a little bit more like you know uh like a conquistador sort of thing where like you are exploring a new continent for the first time and i think it would be very interesting to have a party and to say you know what um everybody gets a bonus feat you get i don't know uh you know jungle survivalist you know like the ranger gets jungle survivalist right but the mage gets expert cartographer Right, right, um, right, and maybe you know the the like the rogue gets false trail or something, right? You know what I mean? And and you have and you have like this ability to hand out low power feats um, that nobody in their right mind would kind of take and that won't break the game, um, but do add cool things that would allow you to kind of like show people um, and help people find uh, uh, interesting stuff to do in the in the campaign, kind of in like that exploration idea. Yeah, yeah, or like. I feel like a lot of these would, like, work as kind of, like, like, you know, like, like, uh, you know, like, River Raider, right? Like, I feel like that'd be a cool thing. It's like, you know, you're playing, like, say, like, a Skull and Shackles, and after, like, you know, for, like, you know, ten encounters in a row, your rogue has mastered this ability to kind of, like, dive underwater, come up on the other side of the ship, and, like, flank everybody. That's yeah. cool. Um, you know, as a reward for that, have River Raider as a feat, right? Like, it's like a... It's like a like th this represents your, prog your your progression, um, in kind of a very specific way, um, just because River Raiders like relatively you know it's plus two on stealth, swim and stealth checks and non-stormy water, um, uh, you take move action more actions than normal surprise run when you're in the water. That's like kind of neat, but super situational and a thing that that would work out for a thing like okay, I recognize that you're doing this cool thing, I'm gonna try and like give you give you a little bit of boost in that in that direction yeah. without forcing you to kind of like spend your power budget on that yeah um, there's there's a bunch of stuff in here that kind of like fits that uh i would say and um uh so yeah so i i i think that that is very cool um yeah um but kind of on that explorer uh stuff you want to talk about the exploration rules right yeah I, dude okay so i really like these exploration rules um I've talked before on the cast about how I've always wanted to do like a like a like an exploration kind of campaign, but like a, like a horror campaign that's kind of like based off like the Heart of Darkness. Oh, okay, um, uh, and that's always the way I wanted to frame it, and I and I and I've said in the past that I would do it as an adaptation of the um, the Serpent Skull. Is that the one where you go to Sargava? Um, it like starts with a shipwreck, and then you go to Sargava, and you're like you're journeying through Sargava, kind of thing. Um, but like that, but like very like, and not just and not just like Heart of Darkness, kind of like you know Apocalypse Now sort of sort of horror, but also like you know I think this is how you get like kind of cannibal Holocaust, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, like like stuff in there, you know, too. Um, and uh, and it, and it allows you to use things like starvation rules, right? Um, fatigue and exhaustion, kind of things. Um, I think that this is kind of a campaign that revolves a lot about random encounters, for instance. Um, and and like. 
I, I almost wonder how, how you know, I, it, it would suck a little bit because to a certain extent it's about being tedious, right? But, like, the tedium is kind of the point in a way. Yeah. And I feel like even if players would be kind of, like, fatigued, that would almost kind of make it, like, work all the better. Uh, but the other thing I like about it is that it's a very procedurally generated um, kind of, like, storytelling sort of thing. Like, I don't think that there would be a lot of narrative direction in the same way that something like Hell's Rebels has a lot of narrative direction, right? Really, at the end of the day, it would just kind of be, um, you know, one of these things where you're moving through the jungle and you need to try and find, you know, like, you need to try and survive, right? Um... But, like, because the things you're grappling with are things like random encounter rules um, and uh, and stuff like that, I think, I and, you know, and you're, like, moving through the map, like, the hexes and stuff, like, you know, you do in Kingmaker or whatever. And then they have these, dis uh, th these discovery and exploration rules that they added, and it just feels so perfect for that kind of thing. Um, the one gripe I have about this is that they have named, they have named a thing points which i i just hate it for some reason like i feel like you could just call it something besides discovery points um because that's such a, like a gamey term i guess um but like but basically what it ends up what like what it ends up doing is right you divide a map up into a bunch of territories, which are, like, the hexes um, in the exploration rules that you'd find in, like, Ultimate Campaign. Um, but the stuff in those hexes is now kind of, like, hidden, um, and you have to discover them. Um, and the way that you discover them is by spending what are called discovery points, right? So you enter a territory, and you start accumulating discovery points over, over a couple of days by just, like, exploring and exploring and exploring. And there's a couple of different actions that you can take um, uh, kind of in the meat of your day in order order to uh like accrue uh discovery points and then expend them on stuff um and you spend them and you spend them not necessarily on like specific locations or whatever or like the thing you know like the things that you want um but like also on like way signs which are events or objects or terrain features that can give you a hint along those like along those paths and it just like I, as soon as i was reading these rules i was like oh my god this is like perfect um, to kind of make that exploration fantasy come alive, I feel like. Um, specifically, uh, what I love about it is the way that you... Is, is, is like the way that like discovery points take a while to accumulate and you have to like... You have to codify them, if that makes sense, right? Like, a character can spend the day exploring, right, which gives them the ability to make checks against the territory's DC to try and earn, um, like, discovery points. But you can actually earn negative discovery points by, like, failing that check super hard. Um, and so, like, you know, you just get super lost and you end up kind of, like, undoing some of the good, like, good work that you've done. Um, and then you can have also people who are documenting and they're, like, so they're trying to, like, record stuff they're like trying to map the territory um, and and making uh, um, and like making features right. This uses the profession cartographer checks, um, which I just think are neat and awesome. Um, and so all the, all of these rules I find to be very cool, very interesting. Um, they have some tables later on that are talking about like designing uh, like designing locations, right? And having different kinds of like different kinds of territories, right? So like an example territory they give is this white canyon, and it has all of these hidden, you know, it has hidden treasures and a and a bandit camp, right? And a wyvern's lair or whatever. 
um, that you, that you would need to kind of like discover. And I feel like like I, I it just feels so fertile to me to make like a big map with a whole bunch of uh, territories and just kind of like plop your PCs down at like the start of it and are just like you know just like go. And it's almost like it's it's not like a roguelike in a, in the kind of like die and reborn sense, but in the sense of just kind of like every time they enter a territory, now things like a you know th things are being uh, defined anew for them, I guess, um, if that makes sense. And I think that's just I don't know. I think that is very cool, uh, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so I, I kind of agree with you in theory. Um, uh, uh, what came to mind when I was reading this is that there's, there's an Angry GM article about uh, kind of exploration, kind of traveling system. They'll link in the show notes that I think would actually pair well with this. Um, so my biggest problem with this system is that there's it's very easy to fall into a specific trap, and that trap is essentially, this becomes everyday, essentially, instead of like being in the adventure, it's like, all right, I roll the dice, see if any random encounters spawn, and then if I didn't, I roll the dice for the uh, my discovery points. You just keep doing that. Um, and this kind of, like, it, it, the way they set it up, it's, like, supposed to be paired with also, like, you could also be, like, making magic items or doing a non-exploration thing instead. Um, and what I think this system really wants is for you to be role-playing out some of those days, right? Like, yeah. you, like you want to, like... When you say you're going on exploration, it's not just like, I'm exploring for the day. And it's like, okay, make your roll. Like, what you want to do is you want to say, like, I'm exploring for the day. And you want to, like, follow those characters into the jungle and kind of, like, you know, build up some tension and, like, like you know, talk about, like, what you're actually doing there. And kind of make that, it's like, like, you're not exploring for the day. Right, like it's it's like, or rather, what's the way I want to put well, this? Well, so so the thing is, the, the thing that I think I would make changes to, for instance, is I think that they they term these as like character actions, and each character has to decide something. Um, but I actually think that what you should do is you are you're absolutely right. Is it shouldn't be each character, but each day like the party has to come to a decision on what they're gonna do, right? So they're either all gonna go out exploring together, or they're all gonna hang out at base camp documenting if that makes sense almost right because i think you know if you do go out exploring and you you know what i mean like you want to follow the full party and you want to have that rp uh aspect to it um and you want to make sure that like a random encounter right like hits them on the you know like hits them on the road and i think that that's interesting um uh and i think all of that kind of stuff is just like super cool uh because it also means that no matter what like your characters are always kind of like consolidated in a, in a specific spot um which is which is really important. Yeah, I, I think I think you could mess with that a little bit, right? Like I think you could be like, all right, today's gonna be like a relatively easy day, and you let somebody like you know the scouty character go out and do like the careful exploring action, so we can get a discovery point. But the idea is he's not he's not ranging too far from camp. Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, like maybe he doesn't have to, you know, like, there's no danger that he's gonna get intercepted or or anything. Or like that. or you know, or if if there is some danger, it's like close enough that like in one d four rounds the party can show up because they can hear him or whatever or mm. something like that. Like I, I like I think there's some adjustments you could do to that, but I, but I definitely think that you're right that the way like if you're out exploring, it has to be the whole party, and you kind of have to be in the in the characters' minds, like you know, like you know, and you're like walking through the jungle, and you know. uh Kind of so. So the way that my, my DM does it for Five E is when we're traveling somewhere, we do things, and every time we like significant stuff happens. Uh, this is from the Angry GM article. It's, it's, I think he varied a little bit, but like you roll this like pool of dice, um, and every time a six comes up, something happens, and then as time goes on, that pool builds up. So like if 
you're more likely to get some you're less likely to get something once something has happened because once something happens the, the pool empties um uh so like you can kind of like build the tension with the players that way by like you know as things happen you just are very visibly as a gm adding dice to that pool and right. so the players are kind of getting like the shit something's gonna happen and the characters in the game oh my god that's kind fantastic. of also work yeah i'll link i'll link i'll put the article in the uh in the description um I think it worked like in my experience it works really well. Um, there's a lot of tension around around those dice rolls, um, uh, so uh, and and there's some other good rules in there too. But I think this would pair fantastically with this for the exploration section. Cause, yeah, not to mention that you could do things like you know what I mean. Like you have players making skill checks along the you know what I mean. Like yeah, yeah. and like if they fail skill checks, you add dice to the pool. But if they succeed, maybe you take some away. You know what I mean? Like those kinds of interactions I think would be really kind of neat and interesting. Um, the other thing that I think is very cool about this is the idea of kind of like setting up a base camp. Um, like something I was thinking about was like your random your random encounters have to happen on a map, right? But let's say everybody chooses to sit and you know you're gonna you're gonna document for a day. You're gonna take a load off kind of thing and not go out exploring. Um, well, you're still making your random encounter rolls, and if a random encounter procs when everybody's at the campsite, you're fighting on a campsite map. But you can also do a sort of thing like you can add an action that's like, okay, well we're you know, I'm preparing defenses in the campsite, right? Like, you know, tripwire alerts that will alert me, you know, if something right. is getting close, right? Or like, a, you know, like pit, like a pit trap. Because I know I'm going to be in this camp for, you know, a, a significant portion of time. We need to accrue discovery points in order to get to the locations. Multiple locations in a territory, typically, sort of thing. Um and so I think that that kind of stuff is, like, so neat and interesting, right? Like, that over a period of time, right, yeah, like, it, it, the fighter isn't going to do anything to help you document, right? Like, he, he doesn't do anything in camp that's that's useful or effective uh, when it comes to, like, cartography. Uh, but he absolutely can dig a pit trap and put a bunch of spikes in there, right? Um, or, you know, set up, uh, you know, set up kind of whatever else, right? Like, maybe you have... Um, like maybe you have like a like a traps ability that's a little bit like that thing that I never do utilize in Hell's Rebels uh, use in Hell's Rebels um, the uh, the crafting the steamworks crafting or whatever um, uh, or the clockwork crafting I'm sorry where you know what I mean like as you level up you gain more access to different kind of traps that you can set for your like for the party around the camp uh, and and you know I think all of those those kinds of things are really awesome ways to kind of like play into this idea but the last thing I, w I really want to like hit on here is that I think all of these rules are really awesome, and I think all of them are really cool. Uh, but I don't think that you can use them in conjunction with anything else, if that makes sense. They have to be kind of the end-all, be-all focus of the, of the of the campaign and of yeah. like the um, you, you, like maybe you can do it as an adventure like break almost like you know one quote unquote book of the adventure is like the characters are going off exploring but then they read reach a destination and kind of like a traditional narrative kicks in if that makes sense um, or like you know they get you know they get this thing where they need to go find an ancient artifact and they have to use these rules to follow the way signs across multiple territories to find the actual tomb itself right the, the, like nobody knows where the tomb is they have to uncover it right like I think those kind Kinds of things would work but the point i'm making definitely is that i feel like um uh in the same way that in the hell's rebels game we kind of ended up abandoning like the rebellion rules and all of those kinds of things um you know those those rules were pretty extensive and they were extensive in the same way that these ones are extensive right there's like random events that can happen um and, like each week you know week in and week out and what you're doing and what you're not doing uh but i think that the reason that that system failed is that because it's kind of system overload at that point because we're also doing a narrative story at the same time um and so kind of what ended up happening was like we nobody 
nobody could remember or stay focused on any of this rebellion bullshit because we weren't engrossing ourselves in that system, if that makes sense. The, and I feel as though... I was going to say, not, not only were we not engrossing ourselves in the system, but like, like like I was mentioning, we weren't engaging with the system on anything but a dice roll level, right? Like, it's not yeah. like we were talking about, you know, going out and recruiting things and following the characters as they went and recruited followers. It just kind of, like, made a roll and more followers showed up, and so they were just numbers on a sheet at that point. Yeah, it was just, like, a really passive uh, system, um, you know, and, and so I think, I think you know, if you want to use these um, exploration and discovery rules, which I think are absolutely awesome and very cool for a campaign, and I would definitely recommend them to people, I think you need to be aware that, like, the focus of your game while you are in this kind of rule set is very different than, you know, it's not something that you can add on top of anything else. It's something that you can, o that you can only do in isolation, right? Um, because otherwise I feel like it would have the exact same experience uh, that we had with, um, uh, with the Rebellion rules. Yeah, no, I, I, definitely, I definitely feel that. Um... Uh, there's also some other stuff in here that I definitely think is cool, but I don't really know what else to say about it, right? Like, I like herbalism and uh, harvesting uh, uh, poisons. Uh, like, that stuff is very interesting. The harvesting poison section is, like, one of the most conceptually neat things that I was... that The more I read about it, I was kind of like, oh, well, this is, like, a lot more boring than I thought it would be. But, you know, whatever yeah. kind of thing. I, um, I, I like the trophy stuff um, just because I like... That's, like, a thing that I like. Um, and yeah. It's very kind of evident to me that, like, they, they, they had trophy stuff in, like, a, a, a splat book recently, and I think it just came out, like, they were probably working on it in tandem because these don't work anything like those rules. Um, I think these rules are cool from, like, a uh, like a fun perspective, but the problem is, the problem with these, with these, with the trophy rules is if you use them kind of as is, then somebody has to make a trophy every time, otherwise you're kind of, like, leaving gold sitting on the table. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really do like the trophy rules uh, as well. I think that they make a pretty good uh, companion for... Uh, like, I like the idea of going into a territory and fighting, like, a cougar or something and harvesting a trophy out of it. And, like, maybe you are... That, and then, like, the next time a cougar attacks, because it's still on the random encounter table, right? Um, like, the next time a cougar attacks, you are now better at it. Like, I think it's a pretty cool way to, like, systemize that metaphor, essentially. The, um, the, the other trophy rules do that, and they do them well. Um, I'm actually playing that character in, in a game run by a friend of the show, Mark. Um, it's undead, but, like, you can harvest trophy. Like, you, you take feats for it, and then you, you make trophies that last for, like... Um, X number of days, and they give you bonuses on attack rolls against creatures of the same class, and bigger bonuses against like the exact same creature. So oh, that's I would, cool. I would totally play like a like a savage barbarian that like makes like like a, like a, a cheetah headdress that he uses to fight cheetahs or whatever. Like that, yeah. that stuff. That stuff's awesome. Um, that, that's kind of like my one of my favorite uh, tropes is like is, is taking trophies. So. Um, both yeah. this and that are, 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 are cool for it. The hazards and disasters are also very cool, but they're also kind of felt like there weren't enough of them. I, 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 like, I liked what I saw. I was just kind of like, I wish there were more of these, to be honest. Um, yeah. and then there was also some, the, some neat stuff with like weather, uh, that's in there. Weather has always been something that I've wanted. Like when I was, when I was in high school, we played a D and D game where we were like journeying across a mountaintop and like weather was kind of the, you know what I mean? Like we weren't really doing much in terms of like fighting, uh, like, there was maybe, like, one or two battles or whatever, but, like, there was this storm as we're trying to, like, make our way through the mountain pass. Uh, and I've always wanted to, like, recapture that feeling in a um, I, I, uh, in I, a game. I feel for this, like, exploration your campaign you're talking about, like, you mean, like, roll on a weather table 
and like have that like set the tone for that day and that could be really powerful yeah yeah exactly and i really like the idea that you know like um you know you you so it, it's even something that you could do where like you are moving um and then because uh, they ha they have this thing where you there are different times of day that you can get random encounters, right? And I like the idea that it's like, okay, well, we all woke up in the morning and we decided to go exploring. Um, and then at noon, when we rolled for the random encounter, we all we also rolled for weather and all of a sudden it's a super heavy downpour or something like that. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Like uh, that kind of springs up on you out of nowhere. I think that kind of stuff is, is very interesting. Um, and maybe you could make a, you know, like I, 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 there isn't a ton of a, there isn't a lot of a system surrounding uh, this sort of stuff, but like, you know, like getting someone to kind of be like a meteorologist and be like, oh, well, it's going to rain later or, or whatever kind of thing. Um, um, like, I think all of that stuff is very neat. Yeah, w weather druid of some sort uh, or something. Like, profession, I think you could do like a profession meteorologist and just yeah. call that like, like, that's a thing you can take because it's un an unbounded check. Go for it. Uh, um, and then have like what your weather druid like fuck around with the weather. Um, I think that'd be a really compelling character, like, uh, a druid that can, like, do, like, a little bit of stuff early, but, like, eventually gets the ability to be like, fuck you, Rain, we're, 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 we're rolling on. Um, yeah. but, uh, I think that's our time for this book. Um, I'm glad we landed on a high note, because I do think that these, uh, additional systems are actually, um... And it's fun. funny, you know, I have to say, it's funny, I have never wanted to, like, recommend a system because of the additional stuff that's in there. Like, even in Ultimate Intrigue, there's a lot of stuff that I like in there, but I didn't end up using any of it, even when it would make a lot of sense, um, because I kind of thought, like, verbal duels or whatever, and, like, even, like, heists didn't have a good system really attached to it sort of thing. Um, but, like, this is the first one where I was reading the system, and I was like, oh, my God, I want to use this immediately. Um, but, uh, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's it for, uh, for this book, uh, buddy, uh, tell us about your week and about your repeated viewing of, yeah, uh, so I went to go see, uh, so it was Thanksgiving this week, um, and, uh, and I went to Thanksgiving with friend of the cast, uh, Warren, uh, and Rachel, and we went to my mom's house for Thanksgiving, which was great, but when we were there, we were also kind of like, like, Warren and I both have movie passes now, which is like the $10 a month, you know, you just go see movies kind of thing. Um, and he hadn't seen Justice League yet, so we were like, oh, let's go see Justice League tomorrow, which was Friday at the time, uh, and was yesterday for, like, contemporaneous sake. Uh, so I went to see Justice League again. Um, it's funny because, you know, like, uh, I, a lot of the time I like to think that it's my first and second, it's like the, 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 the delta of my first and second viewing that defines my opinion on movies a lot of the time, right? I go and see a movie, and then I have whatever opinion I have of it, and then I see it again. Um, or I think about it, kind of, you know what I mean? Like, and then, and then it gestates and the, how much my, that opinion changes over time is kind of what, <clears throat> what defines the movie, right? I went to go see Man of Steel in theaters and I thought it was whatever. Uh, and then I saw it again and I was like, oh wait, there's a lot more to this than, than I initially kind of thought. And so like, that's a positive thing and I like it a lot. I went to go see The Force Awakens in theaters and I thought this was pretty good. And then I went to go see it again and I was like, wait, no, this is awful. I'm sorry. I was, I was wrong about this kind of thing. Um, Justice League has probably been one of the most remarkably, like, flat of those in my life. Where, um, and it's not even just that, like, I felt like my initial reading was, was spot on. Very rarely is my initial reading spot on, right? Which is the reason why, uh, I like to kind of go back and, and give it another shot and to really, like, like dwell on it, if, if that makes sense. Um, what, what ended up happening with Justice League is there's a bunch of stuff that simultaneously bothered me 
more the second time I watched it. But also a lot of stuff that I was I was at the same time like, man, I really like this. I, I like I didn't realize how good this was um, the first time, uh, and that has kind of net canceled out to be about zero essentially. So I basically still feel the same about about Justice League, just like more detailed of the same. Uh, if that, like, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I'm totally, I totally get that. I, mostly, mostly I feel, you know, like, and obviously I feel this way, uh, like, mostly I feel that the reshoots kind of, like, fucked up the movie. There were a lot of places where I could feel the reshoots in, in action, and they were just so jarring and awful. Um, like, for instance, there's a part in the beginning where, like, Aquaman and Bruce Wayne are talking, and they are literally cutting between, um, reshooted, reshot material and not reshot material you know what i mean like and it was just like i don't know like it's like man talking about ironclad suspension of disbelief that stuff really took me out of it because you could see that they were in iceland right that they had gone to iceland to shoot this thing with aquaman in his you know in this town um and then uh and then bruce wayne shows up but they want to give him some jokey jokes so they shoot him against a green screen and they just green screen the iceland stuff in a close-up and the green screen was so obvious and i was like oh my god this is awful right um but then I also noticed that there's a lot of stuff in the movie that made it through that I think was very, you know, like that I think was very cool. One of the things that I noticed this time around was um, uh, there's a moment where, you know, Batman is, is collecting all of the parademons with the signal, um, with the, the, the noise. Um, and he's like and he's driving away and he shoots the, the tank gun on the top of the, the Batmobile and you get the slow-mo of the tank sh- of the of the of that gun shell hitting, you know, like like uh, popping out and hitting the ground. That's actually a visual motif that starts in Batman vs. Superman. Uh, the first of them are the gun shells from uh, when uh, the uh, like Thomas and Martha Wayne get shot. Um, and the second one are the artillery shells because when they are honoring Superman after he's died, right, they're doing like a, they're like firing these artillery guns. And so like that is a pretty clear visual metaphor for death. In, inside of the context of these movies and it's coming at the part where batman feels as though he needs to sacrifice himself right to essentially atone for this sin of killing you know like of killing superman the plan is he's going to go in first and and muck up all of the parody and stuff and they're all going to go for steppenwolf or whatever and he thinks he's going to die and he, that is the plan he is trying to kill himself and the team stops him from doing that uh, and so, like, that stuff, I was like, wow, that works really well, right? That's really cool. And I didn't see that, you know, like, I didn't see that the first time, even though I obviously saw the moment where, like, Wonder Woman's like, yeah, that's, you know, don't fucking kill yourself, you dumb idiot. Stop your dumb death wish bullshit. Uh, it also sucks because that death wish stuff doesn't have as much, like, uh, support earlier in the movie to, like, quite earn this payoff. Um, but so that was kind of what my second viewing of Justice League was, was full of, uh, was moments where I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. And oh my god, that's so garbage. That's that that sounds sounds about right. Question for you about something we didn't talk about, um, but has been uh, a thing that's been of much. Uh, what's the word I want to call? Uh, uh, talk, <laughs> talk on the internet is is uh, Superman's mustache um, or lack thereof. Um, did you like? I didn't actually notice it, and I'm usually pretty good about picking up on like CGI yeah. stuff. Um, cause I didn't know about that until after the, the screen filming. So I, I, it just didn't register for me. Um, did you notice it either time and did no. it bother you either time? Well, okay. Actually, that's not true. I think the cell phone footage at the, f- at the front of the movie 
it's very noticeable. Um, but uh, everywhere else in the movie, and I was specifically looking for it. Everywhere else in the movie, it was much better um, uh, and, uh, and basically not as bad. So, so here's the problem. Justice League kind of has a, had a very negative press cycle. Like an extremely negative press cycle, right? Um, it's coming off of BBS, which also had a negative press cycle, right? But then, like, the movie pissed a lot of people off. And so, like, there were a lot of people that were, you know what I mean, um, that were really kind of, like, on the tail of Justice League and everything that was coming out about, you know, Justice League and looking for scoops on Justice League because, like, people wanted to read negative press of the movie, Um and one of the things that got picked up was uh, was this kind of conflict between um, WB, uh, who who was responsible for Justice League, and then Paramount, who's shooting the Mission Impossible Six, which also has Henry Cavill in it, and he had the mustache or whatever. Um, and basically, Paramount was like, he's not allowed to shave his fucking mustache for reshoots um, for Justice League. Um, and so that was like a really well documented thing that was going to happen before the movie even even came out, right? Um, and people were using it to be like, wow, this movie is such a fucking like train wreck and everything along those kinds of lines. So I think it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that, in that viewpoint. Like, I think if that news had not broken, um, uh, then we would not, nobody would care, essentially. Maybe we would talk about it in the cell phone footage, but like, I just don't think anybody else would have noticed if it wasn't a widely reported detail of the reshoots. That's that's that that is fair. I I, I think that's about accurate because because that's kind of how I felt about it. Like I, I I didn't know about it. I didn't notice it um at all. So, uh, yep, yeah, yeah. I you know to be honest with you, I kind of I like I don't really know what it will take aside from this movie being you know like I I have a feeling that with Zack Snyder out of the picture at this point, um, and that you know moving into DC EU movies, um like Aquaman, Wonder Woman 2, uh, stuff like that, that aren't directed by him. I have a feeling that this kind of, uh, you know, like this kind of uh, press will just not be the case for f like future DCEU movies, but it just feels to me like, man, like people really had it out for this one, um, which I think is kind of a hangover from BVS because I think there were a lot of people that gave BVS the benefit of the doubt um, even if they didn't like Man of Steel, you know, they were kind of like, well, let's see what you can do with this one. And then we're like burnt by that. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, actually question for you kind of in that, in that vein, um, Justice League didn't do very well financially, right? It was, it was, it was also like yeah, a financial that, this disaster. Is the, yeah, this is the pretty big, uh, this is the pretty big problem at the moment. Um, for, it, it's tough. It's tough for a movie like this to be like a financial disaster, right? Uh, for instance, The Mummy, which came out earlier this year, basically, you know, it made it was like a hundred million dollar budget, right? But it only made forty million dollars in its opening weekend. There's no way that that movie's making, uh, you know, like making its returns. It really quickly fell out of theaters. Everybody kind of hated it. And now the Dark Universe project is kind of like getting blown up, if that makes sense. Um, you know, there are there are actors and directors tied to projects and probably some scripts and production production schedules in the works, but just like the mummy itself was just so widely rejected that I'm pretty sure that like that whole dark universe, which is kind of like the 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 universal monster movie universe, um, is going to completely fall apart and fall by the wayside. Um, the problem with the DCEU is that they've already kind of like gotten this green light. Um, Man of Steel was really well, not really successful, um, but it was 
successful enough to warrant a sequel, which was then successful. You know what I mean? And then they kind of got this DCEU train rolling. Um, so, you know, there are projects that are in the works that are going to be made, right? We're going to be getting Wonder Woman sequels. Wonder Woman, it was the biggest movie of the summer. Um, there were um, uh, uh, Aquaman is completely shot. Uh, it's in post-production now, right? Like, that's coming out at the end of next year. Um, Shazam, right? You know, there's there's no stopping that, like, that kind of train. Um, and, at the, and, like, Justice League is a movie that's kind of so big that it can't fail. Uh, it will probably not make very much money, and it will be a disappointment compared to what it should be, right? Everybody wanted Justice League to be a billion-dollar movie, right? Like the Avengers or whatever, and it's not going to be that. Uh, it made $96 million in the opening weekend. It's just not enough to kind of... Uh, to kind of carry, but it'll probably squeak across like the 700 or so million dollars it needs to be profitable. And at that point, you know what I mean? Like, uh, it, it's it's hard to it's hard to really quantify what's going to happen next because that's not a flop, right? It made money, yeah. it broke even, right? It's not something like you know, like Ghostbusters last year lost the studio 100 million dollars. Um, but like, also at the same time, this is not what they were looking for, right? They wanted Justice League to break a million, and it's not going to. There are a billion, I'm sorry, uh, and it's not going to. It's going to get absolutely savaged by uh, the new Pixar film. Um, it's going to get savaged by Star Wars in two or three weeks, um, and so uh, and so. Yeah, I imagine that we're going to see a lot of the stuff. You know, like there's going to be a lot of like the 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 house coming coming down. Uh, there's going to be a lot of projects that fall apart quietly that have been announced, you know, like Joss Whedon's Batgirl maybe doesn't get made now, right? Um, ben Affleck probably leaves Batman and then, you know, the, you know, they go forward with a new Batman or whatever. Um, they might even pull the plug on the, on the continuity as a whole, right? They kind of just say like, you know what, Wonder Woman and Aquaman are, are the ones that are really linked to this continuity and maybe we'll kind of like use them or do them, but we're not going to pull back Ray Fisher, right? We're not going to worry about a Flash film with Ezra Miller. We're not going to worry about, you know, uh, Henry Cavill and, and, a, and a Man of Steel 2 or anything along those lines. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so that's the big, that's the, that's the word on the street. Wow, the neat that you answered everything kind of I was going to ask to follow up. So, excellent work. I, I've been tracking that, you know, like, obviously I'm a big fan of the DCEU and I want it to be, you know, like a successful thing. Uh, it's nice that I didn't like Justice League nearly as much as I like Batman vs. Superman because I bet I would be much more, uh, like, like personally invested, I guess, um, in the, uh, uh, like, in, like, the performance and the future of the of the DCEU. Um, I think it's pretty possible that they just kind of um, assume, uh, like, like I think at the end of the day, this is the big hangover from BVS, um, and now you've taken out uh, Chuck Rovin, who is the, you know, like, who's the producer. This is his last movie with the DCEU imprint. Um, you've taken out Zack Snyder. He's not doing any more DCEU movies, right? You've put in place a structure um, with Jeff Johns, who's, like, super beloved, um, and clearly, you know, like Wonder Woman was like his kind of baby and like his vision for the future of the DCEU. And so I think his job is very secure. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I th so I think there's a version of things like the optimistic version of things. They all kind of say like, you know what, at the end of the day, Justice League was kind of like us washing our hands of a lot of this stuff. We couldn't stop a train that was in motion. And so we tried to reshoot it. Didn't work. Um, you know, we're not going to worry too much about it and not let it affect our plans in the future. Worst case scenario is they go, yep, the DCEU is a fucking failure and they shelve everything except for maybe Aquaman and Wonder Woman 2. Um, you know, 
So those that that those that that's kind of the range that we're dealing with, and there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle there that could happen. Fair enough. Um, only thing I wanted to mention from my week in particular was uh, I played a little bit of uh, some games I I hadn't played I had for a while but uh, didn't get around to. I played a little bit of uh, Valhalla, a cyberpunk bartender action game. I played like the first day of that. It's a very story driven game. It's like Basically, you run a bar and you make drinks for people, but it's not like, it's not like a time thing. It's not like you know, like a, like the cla- like classic arcade bartender game or whatever. This it's like, literally, you just kind of like, you 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 make drinks and then you talk to people, and you know you, you move through storylines. Um, and I think that's the whole thing. Uh, I haven't obviously gotten very far in it, but it's very neat, very cool aesthetic. Um, uh, it's definitely worth kind of checking out. Um, I think it's on sale right now on the Steam sale because we're in the middle of another Steam sale. Um, it's not on sale, so never mind. Um, but another one I did, I, I actually picked this up on the sale uh, is Kingdoms and Castles uh, for seven fifty. Um, it's a neat little game. You basically build a castle and uh, you set like things to be done, and then your your follower, kind of like in, in like a dwarf fortressy rim, uh, I think it's Rimworld e mm-hmm. type. That's cool. Thing is, you you set things down, and your people eventually get around to building them, and you have to keep them happy. Um, it's neat. Um, I don't think there's a lot of depth to it, um, but I feel like it might get there. But it, it, it's definitely cute. It's definitely cool. It's definitely like a, a cool little time waster. What was it? What was his name again? Uh, Kingdoms and Castles. Kingdoms and Castles. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, other than that, the only thing I wanted to bring up is I want to get. Are you familiar with the latest Destiny controversy? No, wait, what's the latest Destiny kind? I mean, I'm familiar with some of the other gaming controversies out there. Like, uh, you know, we should probably mention that Belgium, Hawaii, uh, and Australia are all looking into whether or not they can legislate loot boxes into being gambling. Um, For which, by the way, uh, legal expert in the gaming sphere, Ryan Morrison, uh, also the employer in front of the cast, Barry, um, has said that they are absolutely gambling, well, so it, and it, that if this stuff like kind of snowballs, it could be you know it could get it could get rough. Yeah. So for just just for to to be absolutely clear, um, on the episode where he talked about it, it was uh, uh, his colleague Mark Whipple who gave like the big opinions on that, and the, and so like he he's he Mark Whipple's the guy who's kind of the expert. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mark Whipple, I think I I, I watched there or I listened to the episode um, where. Uh, uh, you know he he's like in-house counsel for like gambling companies. He he um, he, he was. Uh, now he's kind of an independent guy. But th- those details aren't important. You should listen to that cast. I think I linked it a couple episodes ago. Yeah. Um. But you should go uh, find it. Robot Congress is the name of that podcast. Um. Uh, I'll maybe link it again if I can remember to do it. But so anyway, I know about that controversy. Tell me about this Destiny controversy. Let's do it. Let's do uh, okay. it. Okay. So somebody went and like did a bunch of like, basically they did a bunch of like uh, tracking uh, numbers and math. And report numbers and um so destiny uh if you do too many events at or like you do too much xp grinding at the same time uh your kind of like effective xp actually goes down like if you do too many of at the same time <gasps> oh i did i did hear about this actually though i didn't go i didn't get a uh i think yeah yeah they like give you like a negative multiplier or something right right and this is to keep people from over grinding it is their excuse but the thing here is is that the numbers that pop up are all accurate. It just kind of doesn't reflect, like, in real value. They, basically, the way that you found this out is they measured, like, the number of pixels that filled on your XP bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and the number of pixels that filled went way down if you were going too fast. Um, 
and maybe this isn't so terrible on its own, but where this gets really screwy is that um, there are items in the game that increase your XP gain, but that are subject to these same kind of like, the same kind of like uh, rate limiting, mm -hmm. um, and also like tie-ins with like pop tarts. Like if you bought pop tarts, you can get double XP codes, um, and so people are like the the big conspiracy is that by reducing XP gain, um, you encourage people to buy more bright engrams because you can't uh, get them for as uh, you know can't get them for uh, free as frequently. Um, and so Bungie comes out with a statement that's essentially like, this isn't working the way we wanted it to, so we're going to turn it off. Uh, sorry about that. Um, and everybody's kind of universal reaction was like, hey, now, wait a minute. Like, you're just doing this because you got caught, blah, blah, blah. And, like, you know, there's these levels of, like, you know, like, Bungie, Bungo's just trying to, like, rob us of our dollars um, to, like, you know, like, this this was a, uh, this was kind of like a, an honest attempt to kind of do some balancing that went awry. Um but it, it kind of stinks, um, especially in this kind of, like, loot box uh, era. It kind of stinks. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, do, you, do you have any particular opinions on that? Yeah, I think that's super shitty. Um, which sucks, because I was actually really willing to go to bat for the way that Destiny 2 does this kind of monetizing of its stuff, right? Like, at the end of the day, you know, bright engrams or whatever are, are entirely cosmetic. I'm sure there are plenty of people who are willing to buy them to try and, like, color coordinate. I do not... I, I just don't care enough to yeah, care they're, about that. They're not uh, I think entirely that... cosmetic. They you can get mods out of them, which um, initially I was mostly okay with. But as I play the game more, mods are the things I need the most. They're kind of expensive, so maybe I'm a little bit less okay with it. But it, it, on balance, it's not terrible in and of itself. There and and I think something that that offsets that is they're also really generous with them um in the terms of earning those first couple of ones uh for free each week like the first 3 that you earn each week um uh and so this being a system in place is just super scummy uh and I think awful and bad and uh they should feel bad because they're awful and bad. Yep. Yeah. Um I'm interested to see uh this combined with kind of like a very very milk toast reaction from the community on the on the Osiris uh, preview stuff, uh, which comes out in like a couple weeks at this point. Um, is gonna make they're they they're gonna address some stuff they said on the on the newest on the newest stream like some of the community's bigger problems. So, um, this is gonna be kind of a make or break moment. I think I think it's this Tuesday. Um, is 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 the Destiny stream for like a lot of uh, a lot of what people uh, are are interested in, uh, or whether people are are gonna kind of like be mad or not um, it'll be interesting to see how much you know much like uh, i'm gonna call it real rage like how much like fall off they see because of it but um uh i don't know i personally i personally think that this was uh this was well not like well I, i'm not willing to go out and say like this was them like definitely trying to get you to like like this was not like you know like hey, hey, hey rub our fingers together rub our hands together get more bright engrams out of people uh i definitely think that that was it was like definitely a, a suggestion in that direction Right, like it's 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 definitely trying to kind of, I, I think it's, it's, I think kind of systematically you can say that Destiny Two has done a lot to try and suppress hardcore hardcore players, which is a very weird place to be in. Yeah, um, they do a lot of these fall off mechanics, um, uh, which people have pointed out maybe don't have the intended. But but even so, like if the intended effect is just like make hardcore players less effective. That just seems like a very weird design decision to me. I'm interested to see how they, they, they plan to address it moving forward, um, which is one of these things that Luke Smith has said they're going to discuss in the newest stream. Uh, so, yeah. Um, 
anything else that you you wanted to say about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, as as someone who is obviously not a, a very hardcore player of um, Destiny Two, I, I don't feel personally attacked. Uh, but if this was something in a game that I do play, you know, a ton of, right? Like if this was something, what what, what am I a hardcore player in? Like Total War, right? Um, I would be furious if this kind of thing uh, rolled up in a Total War game. And so I definitely, I really empathize with people where they're coming from. I think the arguments are pretty ironclad uh, in how awful and scummy it all is. Um, I don't think it, you know, it doesn't obviously deserve the backlash that Battlefront uh, 2 has gotten. Um, one of my favorite things about the Battlefront 2 controversy is now all of these posts on Reddit are getting to the front page. Like, look what didn't sell out on Black Friday, and it's just a big stack of Battlefront 2, or like Battlefront 2 PS4s, or, you know, like whatever it is kind of thing. I think all of that is awesome. Um, and I'm definitely down for people, uh, like, not buying a game when it is when it is shitty and this kind of, like, consumer activism um, or whatever. This definitely is nothing near what I think Battlefront 2 was. Um, but, uh, you know, it's still shitty nonetheless, and I think it really deserves to be called out. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely fair. When it comes to this legal stuff with loot boxes, um, you know, what do you, do you have, do you have thoughts on all that? Um, kind of my, uh, like I, like basically when Mark Whipple said it in the, in that, in that Robot Congress episode, I kind of, that made a lot of sense to me. It's like, this is going to be regulated if the industry doesn't regulate itself. And my hope um, what I'd prefer is that, um, like, the ESRB, like, gets off his ass. is like, all right, all right, we'll fucking do something about this. We'll self-regulate. So the government doesn't step in because I, I think that, like, any government re regulation of technology tends to, like, get old very fast, not account for new emerging realities. Yep. And so I'm, I'm not a fan of that. Yeah, I mean, as much as uh, as much as I don't like loot boxes, and I'm on the – I, I am at a point where – uh, I agree that it's gambling, and I'd like it to go away from my games, and we could return to a model that's like League, um, where, you know, things are purchasable and we don't have to fucking RNG it up kind of thing. Um, uh, especially if you listen to the Hawaii press conference, they are coming at this from, like, a bet. They're, they're essentially, like, for the children perspective, um, where it's like, oh, you know, they're trying to trick children into bot into buying loot boxes, you know, spe you know, spending their mom's money on, on, you know, mobile games and everything. They're really going after mobile games. Uh, it seems like rather than anything like battlefront two kind of thing. Um, and so as much as I would like the effect of having, you know, loot boxes be legally off limits because it turns your game into a casino. Right. And so everybody shies away from it for that reason. I really dislike the kind of, uh, the language that was used, um, specifically in that Hawaii conference, uh, because it's the same kind of thing, you know, it's the same kind of, like, protect the children, uh, uh, you know. Garbage that almost got violent video games banned in the first place. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's that it's that same kind of just idiocy, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so, yeah. Though, at the same time, I would really hate it if they ended up with a system like in China, where China does regulate this sort of stuff, but they don't regulate, quote-unquote, gifts. So in China, in a, in a Hearthstone game, uh, in, in like the Hearthstone client, you can buy dust, right? You buy like a hundred dust for like $20 and you get, oh, would you look at that? You know, 15 packs for free kind of thing, right? Like I think that that would be, uh, I think that that would be yeah, ultimately and, pretty poor. And I, I think that's actually kind of like 
the the weakness of of like like if the ESRB does this themselves, right, and like puts like a big like kind of like rated G for gambling uh, lo logo on it, like they have the power to kind of like because they're not like legally bound, they can kind of do whatever they want and be like, you know. If, if, you know, Blizzard decides to do something like that, they can be like, no, that's bullshit. Uh, you get rated G for gambling on you. Whereas, like, a government regulation by its kind of necessity has to be kind of bright-lined. Yeah. Um, although, and I know I think the legal system might be flexible enough to kind of handle things like that. It's also, like, two years of, like, two years of, of court dates to kind of resolve that. And that's, yeah. like... And the then, one thing I will say in favor of the legal system handling this, though, is that the other thing that I fear uh, is that if the ESRB just goes like rated G for gambling, it's the same thing as kind of rated M for mature, um, where nobody gives a shit uh, and publishers don't care um, if their if their game is rated G. And so we're just, you know, we're, we're in the same spot that we right. were in beforehand. Right. And there's no actionable change in the industry. Um, that would really suck. Uh, but insofar as the ESRB could do something, right, to kind of make, um, uh, to kind of like stem the tide of loot boxes, I agree with you that that is probably the ideal solution, right? The ESRB does something; it's not something that gets brightlined by the government. Um, yeah. The the only other way I, I I think this works out a little bit better is I think that um, United States gambling law is is fairly comprehensive. And I think that, like, you can't get around, like, like the gambling regulators are, like, a, like a force. And apparently they're, like, uh, according to Mark Whipple, again, you guys should really check out this podcast, that these people are kind of people who are interested in defending, like, innocent people. And so I feel like those types of shenanigans wouldn't get around, like, normal gambling regulation. Yeah. Um, uh, basically, in particular, I don't want any sort of specialized regulation. Like, I think I'm mostly okay with, like, this being declared off, like, a form of, like, gambling that already exists because i think that 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 those paths are well tread enough mm -hmm. that i'll probably be okay um not super so stoked about it but you know if, if it'll work it'll work um, yeah and i i also think that it will kind of uh so the other thing about it is um there was a twitter thread recently about kind of like the difference between good free-to-play and bad free-to-play and how like the existence of whales is not a problem under certain situations, it's only a problem under other situa situations. Like, for for instance, um, in a game like Clash of Clans, where you have, like, an energy bar or whatever it is, um, to how much activity you can do, and you can buy more energy to do more activity um, if you want or whatever. That First of all, that's not a loot box kind of gambling thing, right? Um, it's just kind of like you get to pay for more access to the, to the game, which, you know, you and I might think of as shitty or whatever. But in effect, what that actually allows like what allows you to do is like your whales subsidize the development of the game for your free to play players. You know what I mean? If that makes right. sense, um, which is a pretty power, like, which is a pretty good net effect. Right. And as long as you don't have a developer that's taking advantage of that, right. And is designing the game around like the whales and getting the whales kind of thing. Uh, but it's more designing the game around like the free to play players. Um, uh, you know, like that's, that creates a pretty powerfully, uh, that creates a pretty good ecosystem, right? Obviously, Riot uh, and League of Legends is a, a really fantastic example of this kind of um, uh, of this kind of thing in action. Uh, and it's also been talked about that, like you know, more traditional subscription-based uh, you know games uh, would be also like a way to kind of handle this sort of thing, right? Like that with WoW and with Final Fantasy XIV, um, the the era of like super successful MMOs that aren't subscription-based, right? Or like how every game is going free to play as an MMO. Um, 
that's kind of like gone away and that like the subscription model is actually more robust than everybody gave it credit for uh and that like there should be more of a return to that kind of a thing if you want to like make a long like the long-term development of your game uh a thing yeah no that, that that absolutely makes sense um i think yeah, did you have anything else you want to say on the issue? Because I think I'm no, gonna... no, I, I feel like this is something that's going to be popping up a lot, and we'll probably talk about it in the yeah, back yeah. bit of casts. Uh, I do want to mention uh, that next week we are going to be doing um, the original trilogy of Star Wars in our big Star Wars extravaganza. That will be a double-sized episode, three hours long. Holy shit! Um, but uh, watch those movies beforehand, probably uh, for best for best results. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, if that's the case, then, uh, what is it? Uh, if you want to email us what you think about loot boxes or Ultimate Wilderness or Justice League or anything we talked about in this cast, you can email us at podcast at subdurbisplaygames.com or subdurbisplaygames at gmail.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on all great places that podcasts are played. Leave us ratings, leave us likes. We love it. Um, uh, you can watch us at twitch.tv slash subdurbisplaygames when we play uh, some of our, uh, our tabletop games that we play. Um, I think that's about it. Uh, buddy, do you have anything else you wanted to promote? I have nothing else I'm looking to report to promote. Uh, in that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.